Welcome to the Studio Musician Academy podcast. Today's guest is Mark Hill. Mark is at the top of the list for holding down the bottom end on recording sessions in Nashville. Clocking in for over 600 session dates a year, he's well past the 10,000 hour mark of mastering his craft over the past 32 years in the industry. Mark's head-turning tone and deep pocket has earned him five nominations for ACM Bass Player of the Year. He's toured with artists like Reba, Martina McBride, and Stephen Curtis Chapman. He held down the band leader role for Keith Urban and has collaborated on records with artists like Kelly Clarkson, Carrie Underwood, Eric Church, Luke Bryan, and pretty much everyone else. Mark's focus on delivering a mix-ready tone is arguably at the top of his undisputed calling card for Nashville's top producers. However, he lays out so many golden examples of the skills beyond the instrument that go into becoming and remaining a first-call session musician. We're honored to have Mark on the show and stoked to have you here to learn from his journey. Here we go. Mark, what does being a great session player mean to you? Adaptability. You know, it's, I, I say it all the time. I tell myself, it's a service industry. I think some people come here with the, the thought that they're going to do their thing. And, and you can do that to a certain degree, create your own sound, do all that. But when it all comes down to it, when you're sitting there in the, the chair on a session and you got an artist and a producer and, you know, a team of other session players, you got to serve, serve the song, serve the artist, serve the producer. And that sounds like a benign statement, but it's really not. It's so active. It's constant. You know, you got to constantly serve that song and serve whoever called you and whoever's going to call you back. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. You know, and, and if you get too married to a part, it's bad news because they can feel that, you know, if, if you're hesitating on making that, making a change for them. So I just, all the time, I'm like, don't get married to what you're doing. You know, don't get so in love with it. You can't flop over and play something different for them. Mm-hmm. And it might be the most simple mundane thing that they want to hear, but that's how they're hearing their song. So right. in a word, service. Absolutely. Serve the song, serve the artist, serve the producer, yeah. serve the band, you know. So as a, as a kid, where did, where did your um, first influences for music come from that allowed you to be in a position today where you're able to serve the song and adapt in a variety of ways? Well, I think, you know, I grew up in a somewhat musical family we had a little gospel band and we traveled around and eventually we came down here and did a record like very, very, you know, small scale kind of thing. But I played on that when I was 11 years old at a a studio here in town. Wow. So, and it was great, man. My family played on it, but we hired these supplemental session players and they, I think it was a, a guitar player and an acoustic player one of which was uh, Bruce Watkins, who I, I still work with today. It's great. Wow. But he tuned my bass for me. He was awesome. But I saw these guys sit and listen to these songs and script. They, they didn't do a chart on a full page. They just put all the songs, just little bitty charts on one page. It was amazing. And they played these songs back to us. like that. And I was just like, at 11 years old, I was like, that is cool. And so we came back when I was... 16 or 18, somewhere in there. And we hired all session players. Mike Brignardello, killer bass player here in town mm-hmm. that we've become friends. He played on it. And he was so kind to me. He was like, he let me check his bass out. He showed me his chart. And and I watched him play this. He create, created these parts and played them back to me so quickly. I was like, that's what I want to do. There was no question in my mind. I didn't want to be a live guy. I wanted to work in the session where you create the stuff. Then once you figured out that that was what you wanted to do, was there some type of preparation that you started working on to, to get to that? What was your first step? Learning songs. 
sitting down and learning the song verbatim, what was going on, the feel, you know, how how is the bass working in this song? And then, of course, I started, you know, I was with my family for up until I was 20 or so. And th- that's another long story how that kind of dismantled. But um, I started playing clubs, you know, because I felt like I've got to season myself. I got to I got to work my way up to that. I didn't feel like I was qualified by any means at that time to walk into a studio. So I just started playing in bands, you know, club bands as much as I could. Working in a music store during the day where I could sit and play and hook, you know, network with other players, not here, up back where I was mm-hmm. from, and just start honing the craft. What, what were some of the ways that, that got you into some of your first sessions? I had come here a few times in 1989. I moved here in 90. So I had come here a few times just kind of sniffing around, seeing what was going on, and I'd met a few people. And I knew I wanted to be in sessions, and I was really vying for that. So I did get a couple of session calls pretty early on, and man, it just started snowballing um, because I was so hyper-focused on making that that statement, like, I am a session dude. In that process of that coming together, it sounds like it happened fairly swiftly for you. And organically, really. I, 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 I never made calls to people. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was definitely not my MO. You know, I think... People will call whatever uh, other players and like, can you get me on this? And the only call I ever made was if I'd been out on tour for a while and there was a certain group of producers that used me regularly, I would just call them and say, hey, I'm back in town. You know, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm available. Mm-hmm. So I never called anybody asking for work. That just didn't didn't seem right to me you know, as you're when you're in your early days of music I, I think we all kind of fall towards or are lean towards certain genres certain styles of music were you always someone that was very eclectic in the music that you listened to or did you have to make a you know kind of intentional focus on expanding your your musical vocabulary i i think once you get here and realize how vast what you're going to be doing every day is you do start digging in more but I always had a, an eclectic taste. Like I can dig Earth, Wind, and Fire like nobody's business, and then listen to Frank Sinatra and go, "Wow, so cool!" Right. Like listen to what the the swing of the upright, what it's doing. Um, but and an old school country Merle Haggard tune, I I can get lost in that too. So I think it's it is a definite prerequisite of a session player to have uh, eclectic taste. So it's really important to be eclectic and uh, diverse, but I imagine there's some importance in still having some type of signature thing or something that people kind of think about you for. How do you how do you stand out yeah, um, in yeah, a world yeah. where you're supposed to be so eclectic? Yeah, well, it's it's all about that being adaptive thing too, right? That's so important. Mm-hmm. But I, if if there was one word, I would say that people think of me, it would be tone. You know, serving the song with this growly kind of fender tone mm-hmm. um and you know that changes you know sometimes i'll play a hoffner bass or sometimes i'll play a rickenbach or whatever it is but it's still fundamentally meat <laughs> you right. know what i mean it's like uh-huh. yeah. um and, and you know i'll change that up a little bit sometimes there won't be any distortion on it sometimes it'll be super clean and punchy but it's always very fundamental and foundational mm-hmm. you know and at I get that all the time. Man, I just mix a tune you played on and I just turned the fader up. You know, not a lot you have to do to it. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much baked in. 
how much would you say the tone comes from your hands and ninety percent versus? Um, or were there any things that, that that you remember start starting to discover in the in the way that you approach playing that help with tone tonality? Well, I I will say the the common denominator since I've been here I've been here thirty some odd years um, and and I've tried to get away from it but always in, come back to it is a Neve ten seventy three um, and it's not like I'm heavily EQing it or anything. I'm not grinding that mic pre that much, but it's just I, I got away from it, tried an API for a while. I was like, oh, that's good. That's good. But let me hear this again. Wow. That's that's more my thing, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, when I play with a pick, which is quite a bit, it's a Herco 75. Like I've tried other picks and, you know, I can use them, but there's something about those picks. You know, they, they they're hard but flex so that's why i guess that's why they call it a flex 75 because it digs in and i play hard with a pick but it it still moves with you like you know i can still be kind of fluid with it mm-hmm. where if i used a heavy fender heavy pick it's like oh wow i can't i can't do my thing yeah that's great so with a with a preamp do you bring a rack with you that on cartridge days so my cartridge rig need 1073 distressor and in front of that is the uh, Brett T Gardens Fat Boy DI, which I those are great, mm-hmm. love them. And a pedal board that's about yay big, not a whole lot of stuff. A couple mm-hmm. of distortion pedals, killer tuner, which is very very important. Always tune for the song, you know, like where am I going to be playing the most? You know, I always kind of tune there. Mm-hmm. How hard am I going to be playing? You know, um, what, what so what kind of tuner do you use? Peterson. I like the Strobo tuners, tr- uh, Turbo Tuner. Uh, those are good too. Um, but the Peterson, man, killer. Mm-hmm. The new HD Stomp pedal. Is there anything specific about it that stands out to you? It's just so freaking accurate and so quick. Um, and so the rest of your pedal board, you have a few different distortion pedals that, that you like? Yeah, the, the two that I like the best uh, is the VT. Um, it's the SVT pedal by Tech 21 basically their model of the SVT pedal, but it's so much more broad than that. You can make it sound sound like a flip top, the old Ampeg flip tops. Mm-hmm. And it's got a lot of control. And and then the, uh, gosh, I can't remember the name of that company, but it's called a Bass Juice. It's just a distortion pedal, <clears throat> yellow. And I have both of those linked together and on a true bypass on my control unit. So when I'm not using those, it's not going through it. Mm-hmm. It's not degrading any tone at all um but yeah i can turn that on on the pedal and then i i can either use both of them at the same time or one or the other and when you're using distortion uh, together uh, or in a serial order um what what's the approach that you're taking there just different levels of you know mm-hmm. gack and and sometimes like if it's pretty hardy you know like a a, a really good rock thing i'll have both those pedals on harmonic distortion on on the on the distressor and i'm i've gained the the neve up a little bit so i'm hitting it pretty hard but in the track it's just like it's just butter you know it's so good Mm -hmm. and you know i'm that that usually gets a comment or two like oh my god how are you doing that you know and i'm just like everything's on (laughs) you know (laughs) all the lights are on you know so Uh it works yeah and then there's an octave or pedal like the old boss brown octaver and sometimes i will turn that on where it's really not audible like especially on a pop track 
and where there's a sub octave underneath it, you don't really hear it as much as you feel it in the track. Yeah. So is that that the core of what's on your? Yeah, cover? and then my secret weapon, the uh, EBS multi comp, which is on ninety eight percent of the time, mm-hmm. and it's not really doing much. It just like especially in front of a neve, because a neve is is kind of slow. Like it's slow it has a slow rate. Mm-hmm. That that compressor pedal speeds it up a little bit. It's almost like having best best of both worlds of a neve and an API. You know how API is real quick and punchy, right? Which is great, but you miss out on the neve. Uh, this kind of adds it together. Gotcha. If that and, makes sense. And so is that right? So that's, you're running into that before the pre. It's also on a loop on the control unit, mm-hmm. and I can that pedal tends to be a little noisy um, if you're running through it and it's not on. So I have that on that control unit where I can click that button and it's not going through the pedal at all. Gotcha. But it's on 98% of the time. There's only a few basses. Like if I play it, I love Music Man basses. And if I play one of those, I turn that off because those are kind of pointed, sounded punchy basses anyway. Mm -hmm. So I don't really need that, you know. Right. But the old Fenders, it helps perk it up in the track a little bit. Um, so bass instrument-wise, it, sa- it sounded like you, you leaned towards Fenders r- early on, and now you have a little bit of a arsenal uh, yeah, of stuff. for sure. When did it become important to have a few different tools? Pretty early on, there's certain producers, like back in the 90s, there was a producer I worked for all the time that it was one bass. You know, he just liked this bass, and I would just kind of carry that and maybe one other one to a session. But now it's just so diverse and there's so much going on, different kinds of music, that on a cartridge date, you know, I've got eight basses there maybe. Hoffner, Rickenbacker, Gibson EBO, which which I can make that bass almost sound like an upright. A couple of P basses, a couple of jazz basses. One jazz bass that's suits the 63 original jazz bass, super vintage sounding. But then I've got a more modern sound of P bass or jazz bass that's that's a little more for rock, you know. If you were if you, if you were starting uh, today, what, what what recommendation would you give for someone that's getting into it as far as like what to have as their their basic you know bass wise of basses to yeah. bring in? I, I would you got to have a great P bass, right? It's like a Chevy truck; it just always works. It's just it it's always there, mm-hmm. and a good P bass will work on anything, you know. On the other hand, a jazz bass, you can kind of make sound like a P bass, but you can't make a P bass sound like a jazz bass, you know, because jazz bass has that middle pickup where you can roll the back pickup off, and it's it's not the same, but it's kind of close. So if, if I was telling somebody to get one bass, and that's all they could afford, I would go get a road-worn jazz bass, you know, because you can, you can get that P bass thing out of it, you know, and you've got a lot of versatility there, but... Man, walking in with a killer vintage P bass is like, it's always going to work. Mm-hmm. Always. Yeah. And you, you know, it's like I carry little pieces of foam in my bag, you know, and, and there, there's, I have old P basses with flat wounds on them, but I can make round wound strings kind of sound like flat wounds in a pinch, but I can't make flat wounds sound like round wounds. Yeah. So, one bass, I would have good round wound strings on it. I would have some foam in my bag 
where I could tuck it up under the bridge and just thum, thum, get those notes shortened down, play with my thumb up here, you know, just there's so much tone in your right hand. I mean, I'm always moving my right hand, the tone pot. Okay, I've got it 30% off. That's that's darkening and, and, you know, making it sit in the track better. I'll put the foam in here and open that tone up a little bit more, you know, or play up here. Just constantly moving this right hand, mm-hmm. closing it down here, you know, controlling length of note. Length of note is huge on bass, huge. And, yeah. what, and what when you're when you're playing and you're making that decision about like the length of the note and how to adjust your playing to support it, what what are you listening for in the track that's um, telling you what to do? Always have the vocal up. You know, did they did they put towels over the drums? You know, if they did, maybe I should pull back with them so I'm not ringing through all that. So the relationship between the bass and drums obviously vitally important. What are what are some things that come to mind when when you think about how to have a strong relationship with the drummer? When we listen to the demo, if there's drums and bass on the demo, sometimes there is, sometimes there's not. I'm listening to the patterns. Like what are the patterns doing against the vocal, right? And I know the drummer is too. So sometimes we'll talk about it. Sometimes we'll just go out and play the song and it's so instant. You know, it's just, we've done it so long. You, it's communicating without speaking, and I love that. That's what I love. It's like when I put the headphones on, and I've got a great band, great artist, and a great engineer, and we play the first note. It's just like, holy shit, how do right. we get this good? <laughs> it's so cool, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a great um, feeling. But, you know, after the first take, I might look at the drummer and go, hey, in the second verse, so it's an interesting pattern you have there. What are you doing? And I'll either match it, or work around it in some way, like weave in and out of the vocal between the kick and the vocal or something. Are there are there any other things that come to mind with playing with uh, the relationship between the bass and drums? Let's assume that's a drummer that you don't really know much about. Right. What are you listening for as you as you start playing that first take? His pocket, right? Is he or she, are they in the middle of the beat? Do they sit on the backside? Are they pushing ahead? You know, it's different now because there's so much copy and paste in the computer world. Mm-hmm. Back in the day when we were playing the tape, you know, it was all about moving with the drummer and the feel, matching his feel. Um, so, man, I'm just listening to where he's putting the beat. You know, is it in the center? Is he Does he or she tend to play the same patterns when they, like, in verse one, if it's like, if it's that, you know, when verse two comes around, is he going back to that? Or is he going to a Tom thing, you know, it's like, I'm mm-hmm. just always listening to, for patterns, you know, and where he's putting the beat. And then once you're hearing where that pocket is sitting, then you're, what are some of the other things that you're listening for within that groove that is sort of uh, giving you some idea of wh- where to land your, your part as far as playing with playing around. I, I usually stay pretty hyper-focused on the kick drum, you know, cause I'm, you know, that's, that's the bass player's world. You know, we're building the house from the foundation up, right? Mm-hmm. That's our job in, in the in the rhythm section. So just super hyper-focused on the kick, making sure I'm inside that thing. Super, super inside the kick. And when, when you're finding moments where you're going to step out and, and allow the bass to kind of make a statement, um, uh, it, it depends on the song, depends on the producer's openness to that, sure. you know, sort of thing. But, um, but w- w- when, when you're finding those moments or the things that you're, that you're listening for that, that tell you like, Hey, maybe this is a spot where I can bring something out. 
Yeah, and you know, I, I got to give credit to Charlie Peacock. I don't know if you know who that is. Great producer, and I, I spent 15 years working with him. He would always have me, at some point in the song, mirror the vocal, you know, and so that's usually what I'm looking for is, is there a vocal phrase, whether it's it's getting on top of the vocal, like really mirroring it, like just out of the blue, just catching a, a phrase, or is it something the vocal is doing where in between the two phrases, I can make a statement. And and obviously, I'm, I'm listening to the what are the drums doing there, you know, and I, I don't want to be stepping on anybody else doing things. So those those moments are usually pretty quick. It's a small statement, but it, a big statement at the same time. Managing your schedule can be a pretty challenging thing. Hardest part of our job. There's things that are always changing and going up and down. So the one one challenging thing with scheduling is having to bail on one thing for another thing and needing to weigh the value of different opportunities. Are there any learning <laughs> lessons that you've had in that If in anybody that figures that out, <laughs> please call me and tell me. Because, man, it's like... I was with my youngest son in the truck not long ago. He's a killer musician. He plays cello, and he just made it to the Nashville Youth Symphony. It's awesome. Wow. And I, we were just driving along, and, and he saw my phone. It was it was mounted, and a bunch of session calls were coming in, and one was for – there was two or three calls for one day, and I was having him respond. I was like, hey, on that one, do this, and on this one, tell him we're checking on it. You know, we've got a hole on that day, and, you know, I'm just doing my normal thing. Right. And he just looked at me and went, is this what you do all the time? I said, dude, this is what I do. It's managing that. And, okay, I've got a three-session demo here. I just call, got called for a custom record that's really going to pay about the same, but it's going to be way cooler. Do I take that? If a master call comes in, obviously you take that. That takes precedence. But there's people who give me shit about that, you know, when I bail on that. I've had people question my honor because, they, well, I had you booked. I'm like, well, yeah, but <laughs> it's just. Most people understand that. Ru- right? Most people do. And for the people that are listening, if they're not working in Nashville, a master means a major record. Right. Uh, you know, limited pressing session is usually, or custom thing is usually going to be like an independent thing. or Low new budget artist. master or limited pressing. Those yeah. are about the same. Right. Demo and then the scale. demo is the songwriters that are, that you're going in to cut six songs in three hours. Kind of the lowest common. Yeah. yeah. The lowest denominator. Right. But all valuable and all great and all um, valid and needed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had the thing happen. And every player that sits in this chair opposite you will tell you this, that I bailed on this three-session demo day to do two days of master, and the master's canceled. And you know that the, the session's going on without you because they won't wait on you. They've got to move, you know? Right. And you're sitting at home like you know, what am I doing? You know, <laughs> Shit. you know, and it happens, yeah. you know, but so when I bail on something, I usually give it quite a bit of thought and it's like, okay, I need to take this chance. And now the musicians are finally getting some pretty good back end money. I'm sure guys have told you about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty substantial, you know? So when you miss a master now, it's a different deal. Right. It's, it's not only are you missing the session, you're missing five or six years of payment after the fact. Mm-hmm. So good luck. <laughs> you right. know, it is really scheduling is the hardest part of the job. Yeah. And and so uh, when you're having that, when the communication, you know, as you mentioned, some people may give you hell for 
that bailing really on something, hasn't but, happened in a but while. It's, but it's fairly rare, you know. Most most for the Pretty most part, rare. people aren't going to run across that too much. And if there is someone that's doing that, I'm just going to be stereotypical. They're probably not people that you're going to want to work with long term anyway because they don't understand the business. You know? Yep, bingo. Um, so it wouldn't be as much of a concern. But with the people that you know that do understand, you still want to show that you care and that it's not like you know because it's a challenging thing. You know, we know that you know that you have to do that. You know, every everyone would bail on this greater opportunity that's paying a lot more and has more long-term career value than the, you know, the smaller thing, but at the same time, you want to have respect for the people that you're, that hired you initially Big and time. not make them feel like, well, you're not as in, you know, as important, even though it's not as, you know, and, uh, you know, and balancing that. So are, are there any ways that you've tried to sympathetically share that, that, that news with, you know, with folks, how do you approach it? That is a fantastic question. And yes, there is. So what I started doing maybe 10 years ago is because I did get somebody questioned my honor and they actually posted it on Facebook. I'm not a social media guy. I don't do any of it. Um, Just a conscious decision. But this guy posted that me and another guy had bailed him. He didn't say our names, but it just became this weird thing. I ended up calling him on it and I called him on the phone. I was like, dude, what? You know? So since that happened, and we're great friends now, it's all good. But since that happened, what I do, and oh gosh, I just did this yesterday. If I, I've got to do it, so say I've got a, a custom record book, two days, and I get called for three days on Luke Bryant or whatever it is, right? I've got to take that. So what I do is I call a bass player that I know is great, and I book him on the two days that I'm bailing on. And I do not tell him who it's for. And I do that because that way I know that they're covered and they're covered by some kick-ass dude, right? So they can't come to me and go, I can't find anybody because I've had that happen before. Right. So then I call the people I'm bailing on and I say, hey, man, got called for three days on this. I got to do it. I've got this guy on hold for you. He's available and he's willing to do it. Do you want me to confirm him? So then they may say, yes, that's great. Thank you. Or they may say, no, I want to get somebody else. And I say, okay, let me know when you've got that covered, and I'll release him without holding his schedule up because I want to be respectful there too. Right. And that's worked pretty well. Mm-hmm. you know. And, and, and I don't tell the bass player who I'm calling him for because if they want to get somebody else, his feelings might get hurt. So, so I keep it kind of nondescript for a minute mm-hmm. until I know what's going to happen. And then I can either confirm or deny them, mm-hmm. and they can do their thing. And everybody's pretty happy. And and what I've noticed about that is the people I'm bailing on appreciate that I care enough to get it covered. So I know that their session is going to go on without a hitch, mm-hmm. right? And and just so everybody knows, I've been on the other side of that so many times. Like I lead sessions, a lot of sessions. I produce sessions. So I've had players bail on me the night before. Oh, man, I just got called for two days on this. I'm like, go do it. Please go do it. I don't want you here if you're here freaking out that you're not there. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Th- and that's the bottom line. Yeah. I will get somebody to do my session. This town is full of great players. Right. It will go. It will be fine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I experience it too. You yeah. know, it just happened to be Saturday. I've got a thing I'm producing in mid-November, and the guy was like, man, I just got called for a bunch of master stuff. I said, take it. Got you covered. No yeah. worries. Yeah, and that, that's great advice for for musician producers or just yeah. producers that are listening too. You know, to 
to, to take some of that pressure off, you know, knowing that there's plenty of options that were, you know, you may be really bummed. You really wanted this person on this thing you Absolutely. Know, and, it, and it sucks, but you can, you can get it taken care of. And in the way that you're helping to, to, you know, to do that, um, keeps that relationship strong and allows them to not have to be worried about if there's no, if there's not that added stress added to it, you know, you yeah, just you right. tell them, look, I got to bail on this, but it's, it's covered. And then, cause I know for me as a producer, that's the biggest thing. It's like, yeah, I know I could, I could get somebody else and, and that I'll be, that I'll be satisfied with, but are those people going to be available now? Someone just texted me. I'm in the middle of a session all day. I'm not getting out of here until midnight. I'm not going to be able to call a person tomorrow. The session's in two exactly. days. And then now I'm, now I'm stressed because I got to figure it out. Not because I'm upset that the person bailed on something that obviously they need to bail on for. I totally it's just get that. Normal, you but, know? It's, but it's a stressful it's, yeah. you know, situation. So should that happen a couple times with someone, then there's this unconscious sort of, there's this unconscious feeling of there may be some stress with this, person that can you know be built but you're that's taking, a great point you're pulling that out of there even though we don't we might not even think of it it's just in like uh we're not thinking of it we're not thinking of it intentionally it's not a personal thing but it's just right? kind of built in like man the last few times i called they had to bill on something maybe when this next thing comes up i don't call that person not because i'm upset with them but because you don't want them I don't to deal with it to, uh, yeah there's probably a good possibility they're gonna have to bail and it's not their you know not their fault but that's just gonna be more work for me so i'm gonna hire somebody else and I've yeah, seen that happen that. on my end too, where a certain person called, they keep calling, they book me, and I get called for something that's master or whatever. And it's just like, oh man, I got to call them again and bail. And I, oh, I feel terrible because every call that comes into my phone, I appreciate and always have, always will. Even mm -hmm. a call like this, you know, it's like they care about what I think, you know, they, they want me to play, whatever. I care about that. But, you know, you just you're weighing out what is going to move my career forward, you know, and it's not all about money. It's not not that. But right. Uh, that's which is a good thing, which I was going to ask. So like the, when you when you really have that vision of you have to balance all of these things and it's not always what pays the most right now. And it's a really important thing, I think, for, for players to understand, especially early on, but but also long term, because. I think it happens both ways. It does. You know, early on, you're looking at that, and then you may turn down something that had really great long-term opportunity, but you were so focused on, you know, on that. And then later on in your career, you may be so comfortable, and you have that set value in your mind of what your time, which is totally reasonable. Yeah. But then you can also get stuck in that that spot where you've lost that, where not you, but like players could lose, yeah. lose that um, – uh, just like authentic excitement about something that really moves them musically. And then you find yourself spending so much time getting paid really well for maybe some projects that you're not as musically inspired around, and then you don't deliver as well. And then that ends up go, kind of being the downfall over time, as yeah. opposed to finding things that are going to continue to creatively excite you and stuff, you know? Well, and, and, you know, like a good example is I might get a master call from a producer I've worked for for 25 years, you know? And we've done so much work together. And, and maybe it's a artist that's on, on the downside of his career, something like that. And, and this is totally hypothetical, but, but I get a call from a producer that's just moved to town. He's a young guy, and he's, he's got two hits on the radio right now. But it's just, it's just a demo. I'm going to take that, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to let the other thing go that's more money because – cultivating this new relationship might be more important long-term. 
And I, I've done that many times where mm-hmm. I'm like, no, I'm going to stick with this. It's not paying as much, but I don't really care. I want to see what, where this goes. Because there's, there's new guys moving, especially now, like half of L.A. and New York's moving here. It's like, are you kidding me? And, and yeah. all that comes with new young talent that they get comfort out of calling these guys that have done this for so long. Yeah, it's a lot, lot to Keep balance. that phone ringing as freaking long as I can, man, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, Get my sure. rug rats through college, man. So when you got into leading sessions and producing sessions, when, when in your career did that, that start to happen and what led to that? You know, no conscious decision. I've always been enamored with the production side of things. Um, so I've produced a couple of pretty fun projects. And I started leading sessions just organically. It was like somebody said, hey, I, I'm, I usually lead this new sessions. I can't do this one. He said, ask Hill if he'll lead it. And I was like, okay. You know, I, I do charts. I've done charts forever. And that's really it, what it is, is you do the charts and you make the calls. And you just organizational skills, you know. Mm-hmm. Um Make sure that you're getting the song count for the for the writer or producer or whatever it is and keeping the session moving. That's that's really it, you know. There are certain guys I I decided I, I didn't want to lead for, you know, just because I like doing their sessions. I don't want the responsibility on that session. Not because I don't like them. It's just I want to play. I don't, I don't want to do that. I just want to play. Mm-hmm. So it just it's a specific thing. Yeah. It's, I make. Like there's been many times I've been called and it's like, hey, I want you to do these sessions on this and this day, and can you lead it? Well, I've just finished five twelve-hour days, and that means at the end of that fifth day, I'm going to come home and chart the songs for that session. Those sessions he wants me to lead, I don't want to do that. I'm worn out, you know. It's like mm-hmm. I want to come home and and you know sit back and relax and not have to worry about making the reminder calls and. I don't want that responsibility at that time. So mm-hmm. it's it's, and there have been times when I've booked, been booked as a leader, and that's happened where it's just the sessions leading up to that got crazy, and I just called the producer and said, "Hey, who else is playing on this session? Whatever you know, call, call him and let him lead." I, I just I'm I'm wiped out, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Oh, cool, thanks." You know, yeah. he'd rather me do that than be there half-assed, right. <laughs> you know, which is what would happen because yeah, I, I was like, you know, crazy yeah. tired, right. Um, which brings up the idea of finding balance. You know, it, it, it's a it's it's a very challenging industry to break into. Uh, there's long hours. It doesn't necessarily oh, yeah. feel like that in the moment because we're doing what we love and hanging out. And you so know, cool. a twelve hour day goes by and what feels like two hours. You know, uh, it's like the coolest job in the world. Yeah, I think. But um, there's there's still a threshold of just capacity that that we have mentally, creatively. Um, are there any things that you've found to be important, um, to be able to maintain a balance that allows you to to stay creative and stay inspired about doing this every day? Well, I think early on, you know, as when I was talking about the arc of the session player, you know, when you get here or wherever you go and you start climbing that ladder, you'll do anything, you know, and, and I even played free for people that I'd never met once (laughs) they call me back. It's on you, you know, but you know, when you're climbing that ladder, it's like, I did everything, you know, Sunday sessions, Saturday night, four sessions in a day, 10, two, six, and a 10. I did that a couple of times, crazy long day. Mm-hmm. So, but then you get to a certain point where you've, you've worked, worked so much and you do just get mentally exhausted. You know, everybody's like, oh, it must be nice to not have to work for a living. I'm like, dude, 
<laughs> you go sit with a really picky producer for 12 hours in a day and, and, and feel how your back feels. And you know, you're just like, Oh God. So, but you, once you get to that kind of level where you can kind of like, okay, I'm going to do this, this I'm not going to do, you know, I, I just had five, three session days and somebody just said, Hey, will you come play with me at third and Lindsley Saturday night? I'm like, no, I won't. <laughs> I'm going to chill Saturday night, you know? So, mm-hmm. but I think once you get to a certain point where you can kind of start making those, those calls, you know, like I'm going to do this, I'm not going to do that. And, you know, it, it is a tough business, and, you, and I'm guilty, certainly, of just doing too much. But the older I get, the more I kind of distill it to what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. What, what do you do outside of music to keep your— Big outdoors guy. I, I own a farm about an hour south of here, 83 acres, got a log cabin on it. And we just—we got four-wheelers out there. We just go out there and let loose, just ride and— have mm-hmm. fun. Probably live out there one day. I live in Franklin now, but um, I love it out there. Yeah. It's a magical place to me. I grew up on 2,000 acres. So, you know, when I moved here into a subdivision, it was like, holy shit. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, my God. Right. It, it was might as well have been New York City to me, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. which it's not. But um, so, yeah, when I toured with Keith Urban. I was his band leader. And, you know, it was a pretty good paying gig and all all at once. And I came home and bought that down in a little town called Lewisburg. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just awesome. It's so awesome. Yeah. So that's, you know, just hang out with the boys and go four-wheeling. Yeah. I find that for a lot of us, like, outdoors is because we're indoors, like, 90% yeah, of no our life. Kidding. Yeah, like, outdoors is, like, the great escape, you know. And we're always and, people. You know, it's such a people industry. Right. And, you know, I can get a little bit reclusive just the way I am. And so that to me, it's just like this moment of, okay, I'm going to go out here. All I got is cows and trees. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh, cool. You know, just yeah. chill for a minute. So, right. Uh, so we were talking earlier, like this morning before you came over, you were doing a session from home, right? Using audio movers with right. a client on there with you and, you know, and working through it. Um, that's become a, a, a necessity now for the professional session player to be able to record from home and in the studio. Yeah. Uh, when did you start to roll into doing more of that at home sort of stuff? And um, how did you get your setup together? Man, many years ago. I mean, I've had a, I've always had a studio in my house of some kind, mm-hmm. even when I was back in Illinois uh, growing up. But um, it's so easy now. The technology is so great. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a production company with a Grammy winning engineer and he, we he and I had a studio together for a while, so that was great and bad all at the same time because I had I was so lazy about, you know what, how does this work? You know <laughs> what's signal flow? I hell I don't know. He does it right, but he kind of left abruptly and and it was like oh shit I got some stuff to learn you know, and, but that was great because I realized how much I had depended on him for speaker selection, mic selection. What cables do you use? How is it set up? And I just totally dove into it and mm-hmm. learned it. You know, and I'm not saying I've learned everything. There's, I'm not a mixed guy. I, I have done a little bit of that, but it's not something I really aspire to do. So I usually farm that out. But just like learning the audio movers thing and figuring out how to do all that, I, that was always given to somebody else before. You mm-hmm. know, I never had to do that. So in the last five years, I've really 
kind of dove into it and learned it better. Right. So um, when you're recording bass, um, the the acoustic of the acoustics of the room are maybe a little less important than like if you're recording acoustic guitar sure, sure. or a piano or something like that. Um, but you still need a solid listening environment. Um, to be able to monitor, you know, what you're playing and stuff. Um, what what it, what goes into like the the uh, acoustic setup of your of your home studio? Okay, so my home studio was built by a studio builder, so it's it's not near this big, but it's treated to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I can cut drums, and you know I've got a vocal room, and I've got a guitar cabinet isolated, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, for me, man, it's like, what does it sound like where I sit? Because I love good sound of speakers, and it's for for bass. It's like it's got a thump. It's got a you know punch and be great. Mm-hmm. And but a lot of the newer modern speakers, they have the Class D power amps in them, the powered speakers. Mm-hmm. When I get it feeling great, they clip. You know, and I'm just right. like shit. They sound great, but when I get it feeling good, they clip. It's like ah, it drives me crazy. So. Um, I finally wound up with the Chris Lord Algae NS10s, which I know everybody's probably going, for bass? Are you kidding me? <laughs> but back in the 90s, it was a, a, an engineer that I used to work with a lot that had the old school NS10s with an 18-inch sub. And it was my favorite. I could sit there in front of those and get mid-punch out of those NS10s and feel the bottom of the sub. It was fantastic. So that's what I, I got those. I went through several different sets of speakers. There was focals that I had that I really loved, but they clipped. And dude, the sound of that tweeter clipping, that thing was just yeah. like, oh, just want to throw them out the window. I hated it. Right. So these 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 CLA10s have a class A power amp. Though. They're more like the old power amps we used to use. And they're not, I don't think it's a digital power amp. I think it's analog, whatever. I don't know. So I've got that with a sub. Oh, and they're cool. great. You know, they're for me, they're perfect. It's perfect amount of mid punch and good power. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. What what um uh, type of like interface and and uh, like signal chain? Is it a sim- similar signal chain to what you bring in the studio that you use when you're recording no, at home? No, not or? really. I mean, yes and no. Interface wise, I'm a diehard Apogee guy. When I was out on the road, I got this little Apogee interface called a One, mm-hmm. and I took a. I took a Demeter tube DI or something with me. To, I was like, I got to warm this up somehow. I was like, this is going to sound like shit. So cutting bass tracks in a hotel room, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going through a bunch of stuff, hitting this Apogee, and it just was not working, was not working. I was like, hang on a minute. So I pull out of the tube DI and I plug straight into the Apogee. Holy crap. Killer. This, this thing is the size of an iPhone. Mm-hmm. Sounds like an API. I mean, it sounds just like an API to me, mm-hmm. to my ears. So I ended up outfitting my studio with all Apogee pre's. It's interface and pre's all together. And I love them. I just love them. Nice. I, I, I AB'd. I used to have some APIs and I cut a acoustic part with acoustic bass and a vocal part with the APIs. And then I cut them through the Apogees. And then I had somebody switch them back and forth. And I pick the Apogee every time. So when you're when you're working on on remote stuff, sometimes you're going to have rarely you're going to have the client with you. A lot of times you're going to be working by yourself. When you're working with someone that you don't already know everything about, so I'm sure a, a lot of these days a lot of the peop, 
calls you're getting are from producers that you've worked with for a long time. You sort of know you've worked with them in the studio, so you have a good instinct for what they're going for. Those sort of remote sessions are fairly straightforward because you kind of you can guess what they're going to want. Yeah. For for someone that is uh, that you're working with, it's new or you may not know what sort of what sort of preparation and questions and conversation do you have with someone before you jump into doing a remote session where they're not going to be actually there with you, but you're going to be doing it on your own. Right. This guy today, this was a new guy, um, and he wanted to FaceTime and he wanted to be able to listen to the session while we did it. He was just a music grow. I could have gone down there, I guess, but it was like, <laughs> I don't know. We just did it this way. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what the songs were. He, we, we got together at 945, you know, like I'm going to send you a link. He sends me a link to the song. I download it. I get a mix going, get a bass tone going. Then I call him FaceTime and then send him the link to, to log into the session First song was very, very standard, and I played one pass, and he was like, oh, that's great, man. I love the tone. Um, do this. Don't come into the second verse. You know, play the intro and then come in back. I was like, great. So I did another pass. He was like, that's perfect. Sends me the next song, and it's more of a Keith Urban, what I, I perceived as really rock, right? So I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do my thing. So I cranked the input of that Acme up. I go to my Klinghelm producers, I don't know if you, or compressors, I don't know if you use those. Mm. Uh, it's a software-based killer. I use it on everything. Love it. The 1176 version of that with some distortion on it, and I just I start this track, and and then I call, I get it going, get a mix going, start the track, call him. He's like, oh, yeah, man, I don't want this rock. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay, no, cool. You know, we'll, we'll so I do everything back to where I had it, and then just kind of play it with my fingers. I picked up a pick and just really was... Mm -hmm. And he was like, no, I don't want that. Okay, great. So I'm, you know, I guessed and missed, which is part of the gig, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so when you think about the extent of your career so far, the future of your, of your career moving forward, if there was something that you could tell yourself back then that would allow you to, uh -huh. what, 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 what comes to mind that would be like the thing that you wish you would have known when you were starting? Yeah. And this is what I tell my boys all the time. It's like, never, ever create enemies. And I've never consciously created an enemy. Like I said something to this this girl that I was working for one time. I said something about her song being country, and she she would pissed her off. She never called me again. And I I was like the guy that facilitated those sessions. I I saw him one day. I said, "What happened to Marianne Kennedy?" You know, and she he said, "Oh, you remember when you said her song was country?" I was like, vaguely. It wasn't it wasn't a slam. It was like I was I was telling her how much I loved her song. She was trying to get out of country at the time. You know, and I created an enemy without even realizing it, you know. So I'm just very careful about off-the-cuff comments, <laughs> you know. It's just like, mm -hmm. you know, if, they, if there's something I don't like, I just don't say anything, you know. But I always try to find something where I can tip the hat and go, wow, that's cool, you mm -hmm. know. But don't ever create enemies. I, I've seen so many times, been in a studio with a second engineer sitting in the corner that's quiet, and... Five years later, he's up getting a Grammy. I'm like, was that the dude at the... I didn't know he was, you know? So right. always treating people well. I mean, that's... I grew up that way anyway, but, you know, right. just always treating people well. And Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's great advice, too, when you mentioned that, because it's like in the, in the commercial studio world, interns are sort of like told by the studio managers to be like invisible and like shadows in the back of the room. Don't speak to anyone. Don't look at anyone. I usually you know? buy their lunch. And I, right. I mean, great, I do. Right. It's just, it's like, 
I know they're struggling and, and it's like, you know, dude, come to lunch, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, and the, just those small gestures of just appreciating the, all the people that are around, you know, and yeah. Re, yeah, remembering that that dude that's sweeping the floors could very much be hiring you, you know, absolutely. And I've seen that happen right. in my own career. I worked at the, this, this studio called the Bennett house, Keith Thomas. I don't know if you know who that is. Mm-hmm. He, he used to own it and killer place and kid there named Sean Shankle kind of cleaning up tracks or whatever. And he wound up being a great producer yeah. and he used me, you know, cause I was kind to him, <laughs> you know, right. just said, Hey, you know, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Love it, man. Yeah. Well, thank you so much Dude, for joining us. This is a great conversation. I, I know people are going to, are going to love it. We appreciate awesome. you being here. Thank you, man. Thank you.